0: We're in a series called Woven. Um, Wednesday nights are kind of different because we, we try to take the opportunity to do a lot of different um, expressions of study and thoughtfulness on Wednesday nights. So uh, we just did a series where we looked at kind of tough... Theological philosophical questions that uh, skeptics or oftentimes those in the faith even have sometimes we'll do book studies where we look at a particular book or we'll look at a particular psalm or we'll look at issues that relate more to the emotional state of what does it mean to be an emotionally healthy uh, spiritual person so. Different series carries different tones. And that's what I love about Wednesday nights is we have that opportunity. This series that we're doing is a bit different. If I could teach this in any setting, I wish I were with you in a class of like 20 people. Because this is the kind of stuff that works really well in terms of dialoguing and question. And, and I, I hate that we can't do that better than we can or, or more. But this is more of one of those studies of I want to really have a grasp on what's going on in the big Swap the, the the big stream of the story of scripture And so last week we started by saying here's what we're going to do We're going to study scripture if you think of scripture like a uh, uh, Like a you know some sort of a blanket or or a or a tapestry That one way to study is to look at a corner of it another way to study is to trace a particular thread Through that tapestry all the way to the end and so we're just spending a few weeks trying that approach. Let's, let's study scripture by picking a big theme, a big idea, and trace it all throughout scripture. And as we go, we hit come things, oh yes, I remember that. Oh yes, I remember. And then later when we go back and we read snippets or pieces, we see that thread going through and we understand more the, the macro picture. Does that make sense? Of kind of how all of scripture Fits together. So um, last week we talked about the big theme of heaven and earth. These two spheres that in the garden are completely together. They are broken apart and that we said really the rest of the story of scripture is God's movement to say I'm going to move those two spheres of my space and your space back together. And we see that the very last chapter of the Bible ends with that picture we use the language of consummation these two spheres are holding together tonight what i want to do is look at this idea of the law that's a common thread right i mean no matter almost where you read in scripture we we come in contact with this idea of the law and so a big question is okay as a christian how should i think about how should i view the law um when you think about the law, this, this kind of represents the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You've got like an itty-bitty, I'm sorry, it's so small, kind of picture of some of this in your, in your bulletin here this evening. So this will be a little bit larger picture of some of these. And so when we think about law, we get that word from, from this Hebrew word Torah. T-O-R-A-H. The, the Torah. Um, and we've, we've typically... Translated that into English by by simply this word law. And the reason we do that is because about about 200 years before Jesus, uh, down in Alexandria, Egypt, this group of... uh, Jewish followers who didn't necessarily speak Hebrew or realized that much of the world was speaking Greek now because of Alexander the Great. The very first translation that ever happened of the Old Testament was called the Septuagint. It was translated into Greek. And when they came across this word in the Old Testament, Torah, they translate it with the Greek word namas, which is sort of just the general word for, for law. And so that's, that's why we have continued... To use it. Now here's the confusing piece. Um, We Just like in in English, in Hebrew there's a lot of different nuanced words for law. Uh, Statutes, regulations, rules, guidelines. These are all words that we would say, yeah, they kind of carry different nuances for the same thing. So the big question is always, is this the best translation in terms of what we mean by the nuance of what Torah Means and wh- whatever there's not a lot of debate around it. Whatever word we use, the idea of Torah is this this concept that it is God's guidance for life. It's God's uh, direction. It's 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 how God leads. It's saying these are the the. The, the borders, the guidelines, the principles, the guidance by which I want you to do life in partnership with me. That's the concept. So whatever English word is best for that, that's the concept <clears throat> that we want to have in mind. And so again, I said there's some ambiguity because when we speak of law, sometimes we mean a particular law, thou shalt not. But these first five books of the Bible are called the law or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, the Greek way of saying it was the Pentateuch. We have for like the Pentagon, the five shape, the Pentateuch just means these five books. Sometimes people call them the books of Moses. But when we say the Torah, typically this is what is meant in the Jewish mind is the are these first five books of the Bible. Um. And so I would suggest this, though, and um, I don't just say this on my own. I'll I'll, I'll cite a few people who suggest this, scholars who are much better than I am. A better way to think about the Torah, meaning the first five books of the Bible, is not as a law code. And see, that's a lot of us think of the, the Torah or the Torah as sort of a law code, regulation code. I would suggest that the best way to understand it, and I'll I'll give you a good reason for this as we go through tonight, is as a a narrative, which has examples of laws dropped in it, but it is not a law code in and of itself. It's a story. It's a narrative in which that's the context of some of these laws being given at different times. Um, And so you think about it, the way you approach a story... If you read a novel, let's say some of you guys like novels, I, uh, I was listening to one of these audio books and it was this novel and it was just engrossing. It was, do you ever, uh, what's the one? Uh, Unbroken. I, I listened to that audiobook like two years ago and it's just, it's, it's, it's it's a true story, but it's a novel and it just, it, it grabs you. And the way you read and listen to a novel is radically different than how you pick up a legal book. Or a legal code and kind of use it more as a reference. Um, you know, legal books today, if you go pick up a legal book, it's more like a dictionary, right? I mean, there's an index and there's examples of case law and what their findings were and how that, you know, different implications. But you can reference it that way. The Torah doesn't read. If it is a law code, it's a very odd one because it starts with 69 chapters of a, of a story, with no laws. <laughs> and the first 11 chapters have nothing to do with Israel. It's just about the world in general. It's about human people. It has nothing to do with this Israel. So it would be a very odd law book or a law code if it were, in fact, that instead of a story. Um, and so many people will ask this question. Many scholars will say this. Is, is the Torah, Israel's... Uh, a constitution you know, like we have our constitution and many Old Testament scholars today will say this is actually not their constitution. They had a separate constitution somehow. And this is a story which contains samples of that constitution. Many, many samples of it, but it's not their constitution. It's their story of how they lived out their lives with all these sprinklings of, yeah, their their covenant or their constitution with God, um, here's some of the reasons that scholars think this. They say, "Well, have you noticed that some laws are repeated, and others aren't? I mean, for instance, um, do not boil a uh, baby goat in its mother's milk. That's the only law that's repeated three times, which is you know odd law to our minds. It's, it's hard for us to get our minds around what, you know, why exactly that. But why would that be repeated three times in a law code? You wouldn't do that. Just have it was ever repeated once." Um, Other laws which are extremely important like laws on divorce I mean that's a huge issue there's like two statements about it and they're somewhat vague it's like they assume a whole understanding that's not in the text that the reader that the person at the time knows they understand these sorts of things and so it's led a lot of Hebrew scholars to say this definitely is not a law code this is a story now if that's true because Like, I kind of grew up thinking, like, okay, this is the law code, and you can kind of reference, turn to this page, you know. You know, where do I find this rule? And I kind of, you know, I look, okay, this is that rule. Okay, you know, this is where I find that rule. If you approach it that way, man, you get a really different experience of the Old Testament, of the Torah, versus this narrative about something that is much, much bigger and much other than that. Um, This 613 up here, just to explain that, um, the official Jewish uh, view or statement tradition, how many laws there are in the Old Testament is 613. Um, there was a, a Hebrew scholar, a Jewish scholar by the name of Maimonides, who came up with this. You might kind of think, well, can't you just go through and read? Why is it attributed to him? Well, again, they're repeated. So you've got to select out. Okay, that one was repeated over here. That was repeated over here. So the, the traditional understanding is that there are 613 laws uh, included in... In the Torah, starting in Exodus 19, that's Mount Sinai, after the Israelites have left <coughs> Egypt. Um, and uh, second reason to kind of think that this is, again, it's not just a law code, it's something much bigger than we'll move on from this, is that um, the way that these laws are broken up in, in chunks all throughout the narrative um, of this story now, there are, there are things called the Mishnah and the Talmud. These are writings that the Jews use to try to kind of fill in the blanks, to explain the, okay, if this is how you do a divorce, what about in this case? So you've got commentary explaining a lot of those holes, those assumptions that the early authors would have just made themselves. So I, I think there's a design. Here's my big suggestion the move it. I think there's a design... To the Torah itself, to how the laws were dispersed throughout. There's a, there's a scholar, if you want to kind of read more on this, he's, he's really, really good. His name is John Salehammer. And just, uh, John Salehammer wrote a book entitled um, The Pentateuch. That, that's the Torah. That's just the other way of referring to it. The Pentateuch has narrative and he makes a really good argument to say this is not a law code. They had something totally separate. This is a story about their life with God. But here's the basic thesis. And this is in your outline there. I just kind of put it there so you could you know, kind of get your mind around that is that the Torah is not a book of law. But it's a book telling a story about the laws given to Israel. And so here's the big idea. OK, so what? All right. So it's a story. Well, here's the point is that. The way you read this book, and if you read it and then think, okay, these are the laws that I have to obey, you're going to totally miss it. You're going to totally miss it. It is not giving you the laws you have to obey. It's 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 actually speaking of, I'll suggest, it's speaking of what your condition is, and what my condition is, and what the Israelites' condition was, that they're actually incapable of ever holding to these laws. They can't hold... These laws. Um, so let's kind of do this. Let's, let's walk through some of the of the story. Okay, let's go back. And let's trace this thread. Of, of law right from the beginning. All the way to the end. In Genesis we have God's good creation. Adam and Eve. The only bit of it's not formalized law. But guidance instruction for life is. Don't eat of this one tree here. You can you can eat of anything you have. You have all of this margin, but I'm asking you to trust me and to not do this. And of course, we know the Genesis three human rebellion from God and the entrance of decay morally and spiritually and relationally and all other ways that that enters the world because of that. And then and then you have this idea in, uh, like I said, the first 11 chapters are just about human human beings. But then chapter 12, it's like it just it gets real, real narrow and it's it, it goes back to just one guy. And God goes to this guy, Abram, Abraham, and he makes a unique covenant. That's one of the themes that we'll trace throughout here in a few weeks or this idea of covenant. He makes a unique covenant. With this guy Abraham and he says I'm going to give you many many descendants And through you I'm going to to get at Fixing this problem that's in the world Um, And I'm going to give you many descendants He says but Before that happens your descendants Are going to be in slavery In Egypt And they're going to be there for many years It'll be very difficult But I will not forget them I will remember And at just the right point I will deliver them from that slavery. And so through Moses later on, he does that. And Moses takes the Israelites out of Pharaoh's um, clutches and he takes them to Mount Sinai. And they're there for like a year and they're at Mount Sinai. And um, he says, I want you to worship me there. And there's where they find out their purpose in life. You know, they've been a purposeless, us slaves feel purposeless when that's all you do is just the mundane and the routine and you don't feel like anything will ever matter. Anything will ever change. You, you lose purpose. And he says, here's your purpose. And it's bigger than yourselves. And it's entitled in this word priest. And we'll get to that even a little bit more. We're going to talk about atonement and some things like that later on in a few weeks. But he says, you're going to be a priest to the rest of the world. The rest of the world that was talked about through Genesis 1 through 11. Well, a priest represents two parties. You're going to be. You're going to somehow engage with me and them, and I'm going to engage with them through you in some way. You're going to be a priest to the world. Um, and and then he says, "Here's the next thing." Is then right after that he says, "I freed you. We're in covenant." And then because of that, this is when he gives them what we think of or we know as the ten words, the ten commandments. Okay. Um, let me pause for a second. I want to. This is something that I've done with my kids for years just because I think it's it's good to internalize. I want to I wanna, I wanna teach us to memorize the Ten Commandments tonight. Okay? And it's kind of a silly way. Don't make fun of me. Okay? But it works. So that's all that's important. Okay? So I'm going to need you to use, use your imagination. Okay? I want you to picture the number one. Okay, can you picture it in your head? Picture that number one turning into like a pen. And it draws a line horizontally like this. And then above that line, it writes in all capital letters, G-O-D. And then underneath that line, it writes in small letters, G-O-D-S. Okay? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay? He's to be on top. He's to be ultimate. Number two, pick Picture the number two in your mind. Now imagine that number two turning into a swan. Okay, can you see that? Swan, maybe on a lake somewhere. Well, all of a sudden that swan, it's a golden swan. And people start falling down and they're worshiping this swan. Second commandment is, do not make any graven images, idols, to worship. Okay, so what's number one? Do not have any other gods before me. Number two? Yeah, do not make any idols or graven images. Okay, number three. Picture the number three in your head. Now picture that number three like a big pair of clown lips. Can you see that? It's, it's silly, right? Okay, but big, a big pair of lips. You know, clown. All of a sudden these lips just start saying, you know, profanities. And just saying, you know, God's name and Jesus' name. It's just saying horrible things. Okay. Third commandment. Yeah, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Okay. Second commandment. Do not make any graven images or idols towards the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, picture the number four. Okay, picture the number four. And can you picture that like a sail on a sailboat? You know, this kind of four it kind of goes like that. Okay, so picture that four like a sail on a sailboat. And uh, and someone's going to go sailing. And they and they go out there to get in there. And then some stops like, no, 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 we, we can't go sailing today. You're not supposed to do that because you're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. So you can't. You can't go sailing. Okay. Okay, i will going to go sailing. Okay. Fourth commandment is, you shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Third commandment is, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Second commandment, do not make any graven images or idols to worship. First commandment, do not, yeah, do not have any other gods before me. Okay, picture the number five. Can you picture five? Picture that five turning into like a seahorse. Can you see that in your mind? Can you see a Number five, turning into a seahorse. Okay, what do you always see when you see a big seahorse? You see little seahorses behind them, okay? And so this big seahorse is saying, come on, keep up with me, keep up with me. You know, tell them what to do. Okay, the fifth commandment is you shall honor your mommy and daddy seahorse, right? You You shall obey your mother and father and honor them, okay? What's number four? Honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. Number three, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Number two. They don't make any great images, right? Let's worship number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay. Picture the number six. This is my kid's favorite one. Okay, picture the number six. Okay. It's like this. Picture that turning into a monkey tail, like a, like a tail hanging down of a monkey. Can you see that? Okay. And then someone's running around with a hammer, and they're, and they're just trying to hit this monkey on the head. And they're just chasing it. And they're, I'm going I'm to murder you, monkey. And they're just chasing this monkey with a hammer to smash it. Sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Okay. Fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Fourth commandment. Honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, third commandment. Do not take Lord's name in vain. Second. Do not make any graven images or idols, first commandment. You shall have other gods for me. Okay, number seven. Number seven. Picture the number seven like an upside down golf putter. Can you picture that? You know what a golf putter looks like? Okay? So it's an upside down golf putter. And there's this woman, she's chasing her husband around. She's saying, Don't you put around on me. <laughs> I know, I know. You, you shall not commit adultery. Okay? Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number six, you shall not murder. Number five, you shall honor your mother and father. Number four, honor the Sabbath people. Number three, do not take Lord's God's name in vain. Number two, do not make graven images, idols. Number one, have no other gods before me. Okay. Number eight. Okay, picture the number eight. Picture that number eight turning into a snowman. Can you see that? And someone's walking by the snowman and he pulls out a gun and says, freeze. Which is what a snowman would say, right? And he's trying to rob him. He's trying to take his money. Right? Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Okay. Seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. Third commandment. Don't take Lord God's name in vain. Second commandment: Do not make any graven images or idols to worship. First commandment: Have no other gods before me. Okay, number nine. We're almost done. Almost done. Uh, <clears throat> number nine. Picture, picture the number nine. Can you picture a stick and there's a balloon tied to the top of the stick? Not a helium one, so it's kind of hanging over like that. Okay. So let's picture that nine turning into a stick with a balloon on the end of it. And this little kid's playing with balloons. Little kids always play with balloons, and he's lying on it. He's. He, he was lying. And the mom says, "Which? Would you get off that balloon? He goes, I'm not not on the balloon. She goes, I see you lying on the balloon. He goes, I'm not lying on the balloon. He goes, I see you lying on the balloon. Ninth commandment, you shall not lie. Bear false witness. Okay. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number seven, adultery. Number six, murder. Number five, honor your father and mother. Four, Sabbath. Two, idols. Three. Uh, Three. Uh, I can't count, but I can, if you say it, I can, say, uh, do not take Lord's God's name in vain Two idols, one, no other gods. Okay. Last one. Number 10. This, this only works if, if you're like, if you're real young, you might not get this one. Okay. But this is the way I remember it. Picture the number 10 and then picture the zero kind of falling down. So here's one here's picture kind of falling down and it's like a basketball hoop. Okay. Can you picture that? Okay. What was the old phrase about Michael Jordan, if you remember Michael Jordan? I want to be, I want to be like, remember that song? I want to be like Mike. Everyone wanted to be like Mike. Everyone wants to be like Mike. Cause why? Because he's the greatest basketball player in the world, right? You always, everyone wants to be like Mike. Tenth commandment is you shall not covet, okay? You shall not covet. So number ten, you shall not covet. Number nine, you shall not lie versus false witness. Number eight, do not steal. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Number six, don't kill monkeys. Number five. Honor your father and mother. Number four. Sabbath. Number three. Lord's name in vain. Number two. Number one. Okay. You just remembered the Ten Commandments. You'll never forget them the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, um, I, I taught that to my kids and they were, in, they were in class one time. And, you know, it's all, can anyone say the... You know, seventh commandment, they you know, they look like geniuses. It's like, they're not geniuses. They just remembered what a a monkey being killed looks like, you know. <clears throat> there's nothing too genius about that. But, <clears throat> so, the ten commandments are given to the people of Israel. Remember, it's it's given to them. Now, what's what's really interesting, there's a little bit of a chunk of law that, that comes along after that. But, here's the thing. A lot of us think it's like this. Okay, uh... Israel, you know, we get this story here, they get free Ten Commandments, and then the whole rest of the books is just packed with laws, right? If that were the case, that's okay, maybe it is this law code thing. And it's No, 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 but that's not at all how it happens. And here's, here's what's really interesting. There's this interesting pattern as you, as you look all throughout the book of the Bible, and it goes like this. God gives some laws. First ones are the Ten Commandments, the one you just memorized, okay? He gives the Ten Commandments... Do you remember what happens immediately after that in Deuteronomy 20 and 21? Immediately afterwards, after he gives it, remember they make the uh, golden calf. They break the first two, right? Don't have any other gods before me, number one. And number two, don't make any graven images. They get the Ten Commandments, and the author, the narrative says, as soon as they got them, they broke one and two. Okay? so then moses goes back okay god they they just broke one and two and so he goes okay uh here's some more laws do this you know what happens as soon as there's this chunk in the reading of here's more laws which is followed by a narrative of them guess what breaking the laws and so moses goes back god they do this they break more laws he goes back he gets a chunk of law then there's more of a narrative of them going somewhere doing something and they break those laws and here's the whole point this is why this is so significant as far as how you read this book this is not a list of how to if you know gosh if we just had a few more laws if we had a little bit more clarity that is not the problem there's this issue arising. Why can't they just obey the laws? I mean, how many laws did Adam and Eve have? One. Could you know? Did they do it? No. And here's what I would suggest. I would suggest as you read the history of the people of Israel. You know what it is? It's just the long, long, long case study. It's it's redoing Genesis one, two, and three. It's a, okay, it's, it's sort of like God saying, let's say that I picked a whole people and I afforded them every opportunity. They saw absolute miracles. Maybe they could do it. Maybe they had real specific. I mean, that's so, you know, just don't eat of that. Well, could I touch it? You know, it's not vague. Okay. What if I gave really, really clear laws on what to wear, what to eat, how to build your houses? I mean, tons of laws that would be if we just had more information that would do it. This, uh, Last week, we had this uh, Islam understanding uh, and responding to Islam simulcast. I mentioned it last week. And one of the speakers during it on, I think it was Friday night. It might have been Saturday morning. But he made a a very good point. He was contrasting biblical Christianity, which has a strong doctrine of what's called original sin, which just basically means we're deeply broken at the deepest part of us, (laughs) and Islam. And he said, Islam believes that the human person isn't that broken and messed up and sinful and rotten at their core they're they're ignorant that's the problem it's a mental problem so if they just knew enough information if they had more laws if they had an understanding of you know there's deep you know sharia law and understanding this is how you do every aspect of your life if they just had that things would be great But see, from a biblical, Christian biblical perspective, we realize just reading this this narrative, that doesn't seem to be God's view in this. It's not a matter of knowledge. It's it's not a matter of I I need more laws to figure out how to do this or how to treat that person. I can't even do them. I'm I'm not capable of doing these in some way. And so as these laws come to a close, there's this narrative about Israel... (laughs) breaking these laws um we go to the book the book of numbers and um it's it seems to be hopeless um there was a a book written i think it was in 2008 it was it was by a guy i don't know how many of you guys saw this someone in my family bought it for me i've got it on my shelf i have no idea who bought it for me um but it's um see if i can find the name of it Oh, I'm not seeing it it's called like a year of living biblically have you seen this uh, it was like AJ Jacobs I think is the author I can't remember the subtitle but something like a year of living biblically you know a, a an attempt to live as close to the law as possible so what this author did almost in a humorous way is in the way he was presenting is he said he looked up those 613 laws and he said I'm going to live biblic- biblically meaning I'm going to do everything and I, I listened to an interview with this guy And apparently like he even There was someone who he knew Had committed adultery He like picked up pebbles And like threw them at her You know You know like stoning her Kind of thing Like he said he tried To the best of his ability To live biblically Meaning hold to every single law And then at the end of the You know end of the year He wrote this book saying Here's the impact it had on my life And it's kind of this comical approach What you realize is It's, it's like It almost seems ridiculous Because it, it's, it's like not doable but see, that's the whole point. That's that's what. If you read the Old Testament as here's how you're supposed to live your life, you know, go read the book. It doesn't turn out well. Read this book. It doesn't turn out well. Not because the laws aren't good. It's because there's something deeply broken in, in us, who we are. And so, the Book of Deuteronomy, which is the last book in the Torah. Okay, there's all these laws from uh, uh, Exodus all the way through numbers and mixed intermixed with narrative and story of how they can't do it. We get to the book of Deuteronomy and Moses stands before the Israelites, but not the ones he was with at Mount Sinai. They're all dead because he's been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. He's old. He's like 120 and he stands before the new generation, their kids and their kids, kids. They knew some of the wanderings, but they didn't know Mount Sinai. And De- Deuteronomy, remember I said the word namas means law. Deutero means to Deuteronomy. It means the second law. It means the second time the law was stated. Because he says, I want to I reiterate this to you. Your parents, I told them, they didn't do too hot with it. I'm going to restate it to you because you're going into the land. God's not going to let me. I'm staying over here. You're going to go in there. You're going to get a new leader and everything. But I want you to know... God's plan, his guidance, his Torah for living as he talks to them here. And, um, and so the core of the book, chapters 12 through 26, is, is hundreds of laws. Hundreds of laws from him. Um, some repeat laws from earlier sessions. And then there's a whole bunch of brand new laws, again, bringing greater clarity to the things that weren't so clear before. And this is Moses in this new location. And and the Torah culminates in the end with Moses giving this speech. And here's what he says to them. He says, hey guys, I know you're not capable of fulfilling this. I know you're not going to do it. I've known from experience I was with your parents for four years in the wilderness. Um, And so he he basically predicts what will happen. And he says, remember, God laid before you So this is Moses standing here, you know, speaking to all these people. He says, here's the law, here's the Torah. And he says, God has laid before you, if you obey, blessings. You'll thrive, you'll live in the land, I'll take care of you. If you disobey, it's the opposite of blessings, which is the word cursings, meaning God himself will stand against you if you disobey. And so Moses makes this prediction where he says, you guys signed up to obey this. You're in the covenant community and you sign up for the consequences, the blessings or the cursings. Um, and so here's the point. The design of the Torah, it's to parallel the story of, of Israel receiving the commandments and not obeying them. And like we said earlier, and Adam and Eve giving the most getting the most simple commandment and yet not obeying it. So here's the big question. Okay, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm in the new covenant. What in the world does the Torah have to do with me? Why why is it preserved in a book in which that's not, you know, I'm not in the I'm not an Israelite number one. Let me give you let me give you four things. This guy who I mentioned earlier, John Salhammer, he's this you know Hebrew theologian guy. He gives four purposes or points that he says this is what's helpful for a christian to understand as you think about the torah and he says number one first of all as you read it keep this in mind number one that these are laws not given to all humanity but they are laws given only to ancient israel as part of a covenant unique covenant relationship that he had with them This is again. This is so key and so important because we have to understand if if any of these laws are universal, meaning they could apply universally, I can't just assume that because they're in there. This is a covenant law. It's to ancient Israel. It was to them. Any laws in there are to another people in another covenant that I am not in. Even just ethnically, I am not in it. I can't be in it. Number two. they show other nations the wisdom and justice of god now a lot of people in the modern world hear that and they go what that's kooky because i read some of those laws in there and it's just like what are you talking about because this is an iron age farming community and what i mean is these are laws if you compare these laws to ancient israel With the other Sumerian laws or the Code of Hammurabi or the Babylon, all these, if you compare them, it's a huge step forward. Which is to say, this, it it was to, and this is what God said to them, he says, I want you to be a, a people like a city on a hill. You're going to be unique, you're going to stand out, and as people see the way you do life, they're going to go, wow, that is wise, what is this God like? So that was one of the purposes, he says, of the law. Number three, this is what we talked about earlier, the narratives, meaning the story. Okay, The stories or the narratives are demonstrating the point that the law in the story shows that Israel's heart or will or moral sensitivities, whatever you want to say, were so broken that they were unable to keep them. That's something you've got to see as a Christian as you, as you read that. And the number four, the last one, that the laws are then pointing to the real problem. The laws are pointing to the real problem. This is this is a really key and important point here. Um, Moses says something, and you've got to think about this in context. This is extremely offensive to his listeners. Moses stands there, and when he says this, "Hey guys, you're not going to be able to keep him anyway." Do you know what his diagnosis is? He uses a metaphor. He says, it's because you have hard hearts. Now, where does he get that idea of hard hearts from? Go back in the story. Who was said in the scripture who hardened his heart? Pharaoh. He's using the the description of Pharaoh, the godless, awful, horrible, pagan, no good, anti-God person in scripture. The worst so far. And he says, hey, just so you know, um, your heart's the same as Pharaoh's. What? He says, you have hard hearts. That's the problem. That's why you're not going to be able to simply obey all the rules and everything will go well. So, huge, huge statement there. Okay, so fast forward. They go into the land and basically here's what happens. As you read all throughout um, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, it's this picture of them disobeying God things going poorly, it's this downward spiral of rebellion. Someone rises up to help them, and then they obey, and God bless them, and then they fall off again. And then when you get to what we call the prophets, um, specifically Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then there's the other prophets as well, they're standing on the other side of Israel's exile. Because after, if you go back to... Sorry, I'll go back to here. You go back to, at the end of this section, what we call the historical books. God says, all right, I warned you. You're going into exile. Again, this is a picture of Adam and Eve were exiled out of the garden. He says, you're going to be exiled to a foreign land. They are. They leave. Their nation is just in shambles, you know, destroyed. Then the prophets come and these prophets are on the other side looking back Explaining again to the people, how did we get into this mess? How did we get here? And what's so interesting is that both of these prophets, especially um, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they pick up on the exact same thing that Moses left off on. They pick up the metaphor again. Hasn't been used for a long, long time. And they go back and they pick up this metaphor of, of the heart. Now, let me just kind of say something about that real quickly. In Hebrew... Heart refers to uh, your will, your thoughts, and your emotions. Um, there's no word for brain in Hebrew. You think out of your heart, you believe out of your heart, you feel out of your heart, and you act out of your heart. So your heart symbolizes kind of more what we think of as like our spirit, our our core. It's the seedbed of everything that you are. Okay, So to say you have a bad heart isn't like you know, you're grumpy or you're, you know, you're kind of cranky or you're emotionally down. No, no, no. It's getting to the very center of who you are as a person when it talks about this. And what's interesting is both of them pick up on this and, and they both say that all of this is happening because of Israel's rebellion, Israel's disobedience. And they said, if there's any hope for the future, which they that they did think there was, Um, the human heart would have to undergo surgery and both of them pick up on, now this is, this is where it's kind of interesting. This, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel, one of them says, um, so these are the metaphors, you know, they pick up on the hard, heart metaphor. One of them says you have a heart of stone. God's going to give you a heart of flesh. So that's a transplant metaphor. You need a new transplant. You need a heart. The other guy says you need circumcision of the heart and he's. This is like a metaphor on a metaphor, because <laughs> he's talking about circumcision, which was a sign of being in the Abrahamic family and that sort of thing. He says, you need your that, that hardness of your heart cut away, and you need a new heart. And what's so interesting is both Moses and the prophets, they represent all of the Old Testament, the Moses and the prophets diagnose the human problem the exact same way. This is why law, as beautiful as it is, as wonderful as it is, it doesn't work, not because the law is wrong or defective. Because the human heart is absolutely hard. And then Jeremiah comes along and, and he says that one day, amongst all the people of Israel, he says, one day, one of you, or out of you, he says, is going to arise someone who will bring God's spirit and he will blow, and he's using, he's using Genesis 1 language. Remember how God made humanity? He took the dust and he blew his active life into it. And he says, here's what's going to happen. God's going to send his spirit, and he's going to blow new life, that's what spirit means, into you. So God's own life is going to reanimate you in a way that will allow you to finally do what was desired by all the laws. So fast forward. All of a sudden, this guy Jesus appears. He arrives on the scene. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, um, I'm bringing the kingdom, which is God's rule, God's reign. Um, But you you can't just say, oh, we don't need the law, or I'm going to set it aside. Jesus makes this radical statement where he says, I have come to fulfill the law. And we hear that a lot, right? I've come to fulfill the law. Um, And there's a couple different ways in which we can think about what what exactly does it mean like that? Well, number one, he simply means the storyline. The story of Israel is that there was supposed to be an Israelite people who fully lived out God's law. They were priests, so it showed the rest of the world who God was. And they were this ideal people. But they could never do it. The best of them, you know, David and Solomon, the best of them can't do it. Jesus comes, and what he's saying by, I fulfill the law is, I'm the perfect Israelite. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father. Perfectly obedient. Remember how many times Jesus said, I have only said what the Father has told me to do. Or I've only done what the Father has told me. I've only revealed to you what the Father He's saying, I'm living in perfect obedience why is it that he's tempted when he's on the cross, when he says, uh, you know, this idea of, oh, you could, or uh, well, a couple of different places, this idea that he's on the cross, that he says, I could call down angels, you know, to help me. Meaning, I could do it if I wanted, but I'm waiting to see what the Father tells me to do. Or Satan uh, tempts Jesus when he's out in the wilderness of temptation. He says, throw yourself down, because, you know, God says he won't let any harm come to you. And he says, well, I'm not going to do it because God hasn't told me to. He's living in perfect, perfect obedience to the he's the perfect israelite he fulfills every law and then he he has this idea of the great law one time jesus was asked 613 laws hey jesus which one's the most important you know you got 613 to pick from (laughs) and what does jesus say he calls it the great law he says only one. he says it singular the great law and he says the great law is to And remember, this is the thing that we were called to do that we just can't seem to do to to love God with all of our heart. You know, it's broken soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. He says that's sort of the part two of the great commandment. He's he's saying this is this is what it means to live perfectly in relationship with God and with others. And then what. What he claims is that, and again, this kind of goes back to this idea of what, what, what Jesus says is that because I'm the perfect Israelite, I have lived perfectly obedient to the Father, I have this unique ability. I have, I am the very essence and representation of God. And I can send my spirit, he says, into you to absolutely change who you are at that core level. Think about when you read the Gospels, how many times Jesus says things like, Hey, it's not not what you eat that makes you rotten and broken and messed up, right? Meaning unclean food. He says, it's what comes out of your mouth. Or out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Meaning that just reveals what's inside you. Jesus agrees with Moses. He agrees with the prophets. That the human heart is desperately, desperately wicked. That there's this brokenness to it. And as you go all throughout the rest of the New Testament, uh, you go through the book of Acts. And what happens at the book of Acts that's so significant? The spirit, that breath, the spirit comes and acts. And it said it, it resides in them. That was the hope. That was the promise of these prophets that they talked about. That it could actually change the heart. See, this is, a, this is one of the key things. We, we are an evangelical church. Evangelical means a couple things. But one thing it means is that we we don't think it's enough to attend a church to be a part of the kingdom of God. We don't think it's enough to hold to certain doctrinal statements to be a part of the kingdom of God with this Jesus thing. You know, whatever. One of the, one of the core beliefs of what it means to be evangelical is that you think there is an actual regeneration of the heart that goes on. That when Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you're born again... You will have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. You won't even be able to understand it. And he's, God, i got to enter my mother's womb. He goes, no, no, no. Born from above. Regeneration heart. That there's an actual experience of saying, God, I, I can't do this. See, my response to reading the Old Testament should not be, okay, i got to do these laws. <laughs> my response should be, dear God, would you change my heart? Because I can't do it. That's what I'm supposed to get out of reading the Old Testament. God changed my heart and I have a literal regeneration of my heart that he begins changing me from the inward out and my life begins to change, not because I'm learning new rules, but because my life is changing. Now, here's the great part. Jesus says when that inward part changes, when your heart literally changes this inward side of you, he says, you start fulfilling the law. And he says the law is remember, love God, love your neighbor. I start being able to love God. I start being able to love my neighbor. Not just my neighbor, my enemy, Jesus talks about. Wow, that only happens because of this. Because Jesus was the perfect Israelite. He took my place, the imperfect, broken human creature. And then he he swapped it. He gave it to me. He said, I'll I'll take all that on you and I'm going to infect you with my own life source my spirit, my breath, and there's a new heart, a new you that begins to come out.